Hello, yummy mummies. Welcome to Beyond the Bump, a podcast brought to you by Jade Caldwell and Sophie Pierce. This podcast is targeted at mums, mums to be, and women in general. And gents, feel free to have a listen too. It's a place to have real discussions and ask real questions, no matter how hard, with honest and authentic people. The aim is to have you feeling lighter, more supported, and more understood after every listen. Now, we can't promise that it will always be kept PG, so please be mindful around little ears. Here we go. Hello, Jade. Hello, Sophie. How are you? Now, look, we know it's boring. We promised we were going to stop talking about the weather, but I can't not. It's got to be the highlight of the week. The sun is out. Highlight of the week, highlight of the month. Highlight of the year. And do you know why? I've, I've realised actually why I like the sun so much. Why? And I'm not sure if it's a rude or a fabulous, but it's because when I parent at the beach, I get to do the bare minimum. And I've yes. decided I only like parenting when I don't have to do a lot. I only like parenting yes. when I don't really have to parent. Yes. And I think that is what has made this year so tough is, oh, you know, and I, like, I, I'm sure everyone in Melbourne who did basically two years of lockdown and, and, you know, and New South Wales and everything like that with the lockdowns, the hardest part about parenting is when you have to parent and when you're inside, you're parenting nonstop and you're nagging all day and you're You know, you're getting snacks all day. They're constantly in the fucking pantry, in the fridge, up your ass, everywhere. (laughs) And all of a sudden we were on Saturday, we had just Goldie. My brother and sister-in-law took Poppy to Movie World and we had just Goldie, which when you all of a sudden, I'm not poo-pooing anyone who has one child and finds it hard. When I had one child, I found it hard. But then when you have two children, one feels easy. And I'm sure, Jade, when you have only two kids, that feels easy compared to your three. And we only had one and we were at the beach. And I was literally like, that was the easiest half day of parenting that I have had in such a long time. And then Sunday at the beach again, but had two children so easy. I'm just like, I'm so good at parenting when I don't have to parent. A few of my friends have said that it is easier having four than it is having three, but I was too scared to find out if (laughs) that was going to happen. So I'm just stuck in the three department and I'm happy to just be stuck in the three. It's Russian roulette. (laughs) It's like, do I really want to take this risk? Like you can't turn around to anyone and be like, you lied. Like, what am I going to do with this fourth child? And it all comes down to personality and temperament. I think like I've I've got three girls like that is a full household of personality and character and every age like you were saying the other day oh god I think it was in the newsletter oh god at nine or eight years old you're still dealing with blah 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 I've got a long way to go but it changes it's like some Mm. bits in parenting get so much easier and then you're like oh here we are at this point and I didn't expect that to happen but it's not as bad because it's just a totally different experience so Look, parenting's just fucking wild. Let's just put it put it down to that. In the sun, in the rain, inside or outside, it is just wild. I think that's how we get through parenting, though, is kidding ourselves that the next age bracket is going to be easier than the last. And, you know, some do get a bit easier, but each of them come with their own challenges. And yes. I think it's like, I don't know if you've seen that meme that it's like before you have kids, you watch someone, you know, feeding their kid chocolate or giving them a screen and you think, oh, I'm not going to need to do that. And that's how, like 
the human race goes on <laughs> is because we all are delusional and think that we're going to do things differently or find things easier. And that's just, that's just parenting. And I think that's just how we get by. Otherwise, why would you decide to reproduce? Why would you, how would you keep going through it? Because we're all dead <laughs> I don't want to know that your nine-year-old doesn't listen. All right. I want to kid myself that I, once my kids start school, all of a sudden they start listening. <laughs> all right. I don't want to hear your shit. <laughs> I know. No one does. So was that your high? weather. My high was the weather and my low actually I think came related to the weather and it's something that's a bit foreign to me. Like I'm not kidding myself that I'm always like body love, fucking love this body, da 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 da. But I think with the weather and getting back in bathers, I had these really negative body image thoughts and, you know, saw some photos of myself and was really just felt so blur with myself. It was like the back of my legs and they looked really like cellulite and I don't know, it was just, I don't know if it's when I'm used to being in bathers all the time. I just get used to the way my body looks and I accept it and that's fine. But just these last couple of weeks, I've just felt so down on my body and so down on like what I'm going to wear. And I think it's a change of season thing as well that I'm like, oh, I hate all my winter clothes on me. Like suddenly getting back in jeans again and maybe the jeans that fit me really well last winter are just not fitting the same way this winter. And so I don't know. If there's anyone else out there who's finding it hard, like getting back into pants or I don't know, it's it, it's it's quite foreign to me and I don't know what it is exactly that has triggered it this time. But I just, you know, I was going through photos of myself at the beach and I was just like, oh, I just look frumpy and all of them. I was just being so hard on myself and I don't know why. But anyway, still working through it. That's been the love of the week. I think you're beautiful. Thank you. No matter what size or how you're feeling, you probably look exactly the same. It's just something that you're going through or, you know, it is what it is. But I actually looked in the reflection. I was in swimmers too. And, you know, obviously we're a lot paler and it's just that time of year and we haven't seen sun for a very long time. But regardless, I looked in the the car window and I said to Greta, is that cellulite all over my arms? <laughs> She's like, I had it on my yeah. upper arms too. She's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I'm like, I knew I had it all over the back of my legs, but I didn't know that I had it on my arms. And she's like, yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> I was like, oh, okay, cool. <laughs> uh, and the thing that's stupid is on anyone else. We don't I, care. You just don't care. I, know, I, I look at everyone else on the beach and no matter what shape or size, I just think you look fucking amazing. We're so hard on ourselves. And then, you know, you see a picture of yourself and, <laughs> or yeah, you spot some cellulite on your upper arm and all of a sudden it's, it's not acceptable. And anyway, I think I need to go back and listen to our own episode on yes. body acceptance and remind myself that I don't have to love every part of my body, but I should accept it. And I think it is that ongoing you know, Goldie's two and a half now. So you don't feel like you're like in that postpartum stage. So you almost, I think I almost get at myself as like, what's your excuse? You're not postpartum, but which is just so stupid. If anyone ever said that to me, I would say, pull your head in. Like you are beautiful. You have still grown and birthed babies. Like, you know, you will be in postpartum forever. I know. But I just can't help how you feel and the way you think though. It's just, you know, it's just the way it is. Yeah. Anyway, on a lighter note, what have your highs and lows been? Well, sorry, I won't say on a lighter note because it might not be on a lighter note. 
<laughs> you don't know with me. Well, my lows have actually turned into my highs, believe it Ooh, or love not. That. We do. So obviously I have mentioned that I've been going through a bit of depression and while having depression, my doctors have decided to wean me off medication that I've been on since I was 18 years of age. I'm now almost Yay. nearly 35, but they, they said, look, you you couldn't feel any worse. So, you know, I know it's winter, it's probably not the best time to do it, but we've got no option here. We need to change it. So I've been going through the motions of changing medication, going through the motions of withdrawal from that medication, which has been massive headaches, massive mood swings, very, very tired, very, very confused. And then also I've had PMS because I'm about to get my period. So I said that to one of the doctors and he's like, okay, next time, <laughs> next time if we ever have to change medication, we need to be a little bit more mindful of your cycle because that is a lot for you to handle. But you know what? But how long does that process go for? Like surely it's going to end up like, is it a month long process? Or? So it'll take usually, I, ha- I have to taper off medication. Like you can't just go cold turkey. Yeah. So I went from a certain amount down, down, down over a few days. So in a week, I tapered all the way down to the lowest point. After seven days, I then had to do one day of no medication at all. And when I walked into the pharmacy and handed over this script, the pharmacist said, is this the first time you're having this medication? I said, yes. And he said, so you've had a day of absolutely nothing from your last medication. And I said, yes. And he's like, how on earth are you feeling today? And I'm like, I am not feeling great, but I'm understanding that Mm. the reason I'm not feeling great is because of all this and I'm going to be better soon. So I'm just doing what I can. And I'm not going to lie, I've had to take some Valium to get me through this past week. It's just, it's such a isolating feeling. And I felt like a burden. I started to feel like I was a burden to you. I was a burden to him, my family. Like I feel like everyone just gets so tired of hearing someone whinge or complain about themselves. But for me, when I have anxiety, I actually, I have to talk about it. It's, it's Mm. sort of just how I, how it goes. So look, it's been a very self-sabotaging week, but on the upside, I'm so damn proud of myself. Like if I can do that, I always said that, you know, um, when I was in Morocco and I was vomiting and there was only a camel to get back to land, that was my downfall. And if I can do that, I can do anything. No, if I can go through depression, wean off medication, handle my three children, do a food shop, get back on medication, go through withdrawal symptoms and sit here today, I am stronger than I fucking thought. So Mm. it's been a massive few weeks. I'm feeling like the medication hasn't kicked in, but I've been getting a lot of help and I'm feeling really, really positive about the future and I'm feeling really, really good and I'm understanding myself better. And yeah, the other thing I wanted to say, and I wanted to share some tips with our listeners is I've been doing a few hacks. Now, these are like mindfulness. One I stole from last week's guest, Chelsea, and it's brushing your teeth with your opposite hand. 
It is the funniest thing. It's a bit of a mindfulness trick. It is the funniest thing you can do in the morning. It is so goddamn hard. You feel so silly doing it, but it puts you in a different mood. It's try it. Like you have to concentrate. You really have to concentrate with the other hand and it's so strange, but it really, if you're in a funk, it, it does change your way of thinking. My other thing that's really worked is my husband and I have been doing a 10 second kiss every day. It doesn't matter what time of day it is. We have implemented this rule and I found it reading something somewhere as I do. (laughs) And it is a game changer. So he decides to use this when we are in mid argument and I have to do it. So my stubborn- Do you bite his tongue off? <laughs> I, yeah, no, it's no, there's no pash. It's literally just a lip kiss and you can do it in public. You can do it anywhere. You just hold for 10 seconds. You can look at each other in the eyes, but it's it's about the connection and holding that for that period, something shifts and mm. we- have been loving it. So he does it mid-argument and we end up calming down. It's really good for us. And then the other times I do it is before I leave the house. So I'll say 10-second kiss and he'll do that like outside the car and then we start our day on that note. And if he's not there or available, I get one of my kids and we hold a 10-second kiss and it is the funnest thing ever. So even if you're not doing it You get a random dad at school drop-off. Mate, that's the goal. If you can find (laughs) someone anywhere on the street and just ask for a 10-second kiss. Like, oh, Chris Hemsworth. How oh, what a shame. Sorry, I have to do a 10 second. I couldn't find my husband. I have to husband. do this as part of my mindfulness practice. You'll do. That You'll is do. awesome because I feel like especially the um, running out the door thing, yes. sometimes we go like, I need to be out the door now. And it's like there is no reason why you cannot be 10 seconds later yes. for anywhere. But it does. I reckon that would just slow you down that bit to go, it everything's does. okay. I'm going to get there. Even if I'm a little bit late, what's the worst that's going to happen? And five seconds isn't enough, but you get to about nine seconds and I start opening my eyes and we both smile at each other. It is just, oh, oh it's really nice. It's re- Try it. Everyone try it and let me know how you go. It's actually, you can do it with your kids, do it with Chris Hemsworth, whoever you want, just do it. <laughs> I need to rewind back and just remind you that you are never a burden to me. Oh. Well, I wouldn't say never. I just I was this morning when I told you to get out of no, your no, sunset no. I sunrise. Mean, in, in terms of your <laughs> mental health, you are never a burden to me. I know that you get so, even though you said like in your anxious state, you need to talk, but then at the same time, you get so over talking about yourself and you were like, I cannot wait until I can get on the podcast and do an introduction that does not revolve around my mental health. But as we've said so many times, like you are helping so many people out there by talking about it. Mental health is not something that you know, you feel depressed in one intro and then boom, the next week you're like, (laughs) fuck yeah, I feel amazing. I'm fabulous. Like this is just the way it is. And, you know, like you will feel better soon, hopefully. And if you're not, we're all still here. And it's not something that one day you're feeling down, the next day you're feeling great. Unfortunately, with you, sometimes it does happen that you're down for a while and, and, and you know you will get better because you've done it before. And as you said, look what you've already got through in this past week and over this past couple of months. And yeah, like we're all here for you. Love you. Thank you. Love you. I appreciate it. I really appreciate it. Now we do have a Rudolph Fabulous to lift lift the mood. Yes. It was sent in by one of our lovely listeners. I just love this because it's just the honesty of kids and you kind of go, yeah, well, why wouldn't they do that? Because <laughs> we do that probably to our kids and they would just be like, well, if you can do that to me, I can do it to you. She said, today I was getting changed in front of my near two-year-old. 
When I was completely stark naked, my two-year-old walked around behind me to my bum, spread my butt cheeks wide and said, (laughs) there's no poo there, mummy. Best parenting moment so far. Thought it was absolutely fabulous. Have celebrated tonight with some champagne. Yes. I'd be concerned if the answer was something different, but yeah. um, I'm glad there's no poo there. Oh, I had this conversation with some people <laughs> that I went out for a drink with at a distillery yesterday afternoon. Do you fold or do you scrunch? Scrunch, 100%. There's no, no question. Who folds? Nick. Does he? And it's so surprising because he is like not a particularly organised guy. So I'm like, how, hey, why? Hey, our husbands have had a conversation on an episode about this. and They n- both fold, don't no, they? No, Harry was a scruncher because he's like, you've got to really get in all the crevices. How do you, you need in- all the angles? Yes. And I'm like, how does your finger not go through? And he says, you just like curve your hand as you're going up and wipe the butt. But then as my brother was saying, he's a scruncher too. He's like, I would just be so scared that you would like there's just seems like there's so much like room to slip and then he's like I'd be scared I'd end up with shit on my shoulder like I guess where he's coming from like if you think about baby wipes they're folded right like we don't scrunch a baby wipe but they're wet but they're wet you need the moistness can we can we get another to do a video and just a tutorial (laughs) we can pop it on the podcast Fucking watch at your own risk. Another question that came up on Penny from Sick Happens, the paediatric nurse who we've spoken to before. She had a whole poll going about whether people sit or stand to wipe. Oh, yeah, okay, this is a thing. I saw, I think it was Maddie J and my husband, I'm sorry, I'm throwing him under the bus right now, he stands up, right? And for men, I guess it kind of makes sense. He He stands up and... He reckons that the angle that he's on, scrunched as well, is a really good position to get everything done. No, when you stand up, your butt cheeks are too close together. No, but I think we're talking about their balls. Like I think that's the reason they're doing it to stand up is because they've got a lot of things going on down there that they need to like have gravity But help. if you're sitting down, the gravity is just hanging the balls down and then you reach behind and you wipe and when you're sitting, your butt cheeks are nicely spread. Yeah, look... I'm going to have to go back to him on it. but look, We're the- going to do some polls on our Insta this week about scrunching and folding and sitting and standing. But we should probably get into today's episode. Oh, hang on. We got a ma- <laughs> We've got a mum hack as well. If you want to extend your child's car nap when they normally wake up when you turn off the car, before you stop, tune the radio in between stations and that static that makes the perfect white noise. You're a goddamn genius. Do you know how many people I've heard say instead of buying expensive white noise machines, just get an AM, FM radio. You can get one from like Bunnings for $3 and you just have it not tuned and it's perfect. Goddamn genius. All right, let's get into today's episode. We've okay, t- Once again, we're talking about shit again. I know. I'm sorry. sorry. We want to be highbrow, but we just, we can't pull it off. We just fell. This week we speak to Zoe from Eugene, which is a genetic counselling and genetic testing company. She will be able to explain it much better than that. <laughs> but she answered all our questions about preconception genetic testing. We learnt so much. This was so, so interesting. Yeah, what do you think? Yeah, I thought it was absolutely incredible. For anyone that is thinking about conceiving, this is such an interesting episode. So we hope you enjoy. Enjoy and we'll stop rambling now. (laughs) 
Hello, Zoe. Thank you so much for joining us on Beyond the Bump today. Before we get started, are you able to tell us a little bit about yourself and what you do and why you do it? Absolutely. So my name is Zoe Milgram. I am a trained genetic counsellor. Lots of people haven't heard of genetic counsellors before, but basically what we are trained to do is to support people who are exploring a potential genetic diagnosis or being investigated for a familial risk. And the genetic counsellor's role is to work with a number of different medical specialists to support the family at the point of diagnosis and investigation. And really what we try and do is we provide psychosocial support. So we're really decoding all that scientific jargon and making it really meaningful and supporting an individual really based on their expectations and ensuring that we can provide client-centered care because we know that once you're in a doctor's surgery or in a hospital, things can be pretty overwhelming, especially when we're talking about the health of ourselves or our loved ones. So I'm a genetic counsellor and I worked within the public and private healthcare sector for well over a decade. And during that time, I helped hundreds and thousands of families adjust to genetic diagnoses. And really, for the most part, genetic counsellors are there to deliver bad news. And it was really difficult to see people as they adjusted to a diagnosis in themselves or a loved one. And I spent a number of years working with children and their families and also in an obstetric setting. And I have to say it was certainly the most humbling part of the job working with families as they were adjusting to this news and something that really prompted me to start Eugene was the fact that genetic technologies were evolving really really quickly and the accessibility and cost of these tests was falling yet most people who we were seeing within a hospital setting were really about two to three percent of the population um, were able to access genetic technologies and we I was sitting there and I thought you know I'm a mum now and if I knew about this, I would want to have access to it. But how does someone who doesn't know gain access? And that's why we founded Eugene back in 2018. We really want to make genetic technologies accessible to everyone in a really meaningful way. And what we're trying to do is basically provide a healthcare service that we would want for ourselves and our loved ones, ones that where we feel heard and supported in a way that is important to us. So that was a long-winded answer to a simple question. but No, that's great. But I think that especially with something like genetic counselling, it's one thing, you know, for it to be accessible to more people. But obviously, it's complex. Like what are you then going to do with that information? What does that information even need? So it's almost pointless to allow people to access the tests if you then don't have the resources for the counselling and Mm. the education as well. That's really what Eugene is all about. We know that these tests are available, but we want to create a really safe and ethical space that people can feel supported by genetic counselling. So that counselling is available before you do a test so that you can understand what the likely outcomes of a test is, you know, why are you having that test and also what the options may be for you when those results come through. And we're really there to support you to acclimatise to that information and know your options so that you can make an informed health decision that's empowering rather than overwhelming. Mm. So for those that don't know, like what is preconception genetic testing? Yeah, that's a really good question. So there are lots of names that preconception testing goes by. I'm going to be using genetic carrier screening because that's the way we refer to it at Eugene. 
But basically, genetic carrier screening is a test that looks at an individual or a couple's DNA to help give them information about the chance of having a child with a serious inherited genetic condition. So in a, in a way, it's not diagnostic, but it's proactive. So it's giving the individuals information that they can then make choices from. And I think what's really important to point out here is that the Royal Australian College of General Practitioners and the Royal Australian College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists recommend that all couples who are planning a pregnancy or in the first trimester of pregnancy be informed about genetic carrier screening as something that is available to them. Yeah, because we had one person who wrote in and she was concerned because her GP said, well, you don't have a family history of anything, so I wouldn't recommend you getting testing before you start trying to conceive. So is that probably not the best advice? Yeah, so I think it's really important to acknowledge that all doctors have their areas of specialty and genetics is a specialty in its own right and many doctors aren't necessarily on top of that because it can be complicated and it's also a massively evolving field in medicine. And it's, again, it's one of the reasons that we built Eugene because we believe that everyone should be able to access genetic testing and counselling to support them to make informed choices about their health and the health of their future children. And really what we know when we think about statistics, and I know statistics can come from lots of different places, but family history isn't a great predictor of whether you're likely to have a child with an inherited genetic condition. In fact, we think that about 80% of children that are born with these conditions don't have a family history. So that's a really interesting thing to think about. You know, a lot of doctors will look at your ethnic background and if you're a Greek ancestry, they'll say, hey, we, you should have thalassemia screening as part of your pregnancy planning because thalassemia is really common in the Greek community. Or if you're Jewish, the doctor might say, hey, it's really important that you have Tay-Sachs screening because that's really common in your ethnic community. But what we know is that first and foremost, our self-reported ethnicity is usually wrong. Um, a lot of people say, oh, yeah, I'm Australian, but we're not actually native Australians. You know, we come with a really multi-ethnic ancestry and we need to acknowledge that genetic variations are super common. You know, 70% of people who would do an expanded genetic carrier screening panel like the one we offer will come back as a healthy carrier of a genetic variation in a serious genetic condition that could impact the health of their children. So family history is not a great predictor. Ethnicity is a helpful clue, but it's certainly not a predictor either. So definitely all GPs out there, you should absolutely be talking about carrier screening. And if you don't feel comfortable, there are services out there to support you in supporting your patients to access the care when they need it. And what does the testing look for? And why are some of the things not detectable or not tested? Yeah, that's a really good question as well. So genetic carrier screening can test for as few as three genetic conditions or up to you know many hundreds. And these genetic conditions are inherited in two broad patterns. And we're going to take it back to basic biology. <laughs> if you can remember back to year 10 or year 11. No, then, nope. I don't no, remember yesterday. <laughs> I know, it's baby brain, right? But basically, autosomal recessive inheritance is a pattern where once we acknowledge that both mum and dad carry two copies of each gene, we know that you can carry a variation on one copy of that gene and be completely healthy. 
And that's why we call it recessive because the copy that's functioning or the recipe that's functioning in the way we would expect dominates over that change and so you're healthy. So we know that all healthy individuals carry between two and five recessive genetic variations that you wouldn't be able to tell by looking at them. You wouldn't know by walking down the street. This is what genetic carrier screening, that's why it's so powerful because it's looking inside your DNA to identify those subtle changes that make us unique. So autosomal recessive inheritance normally form the bulk of these tests. In fact, uh, in Eugene's panel, we work with a laboratory to provide testing of 267 recessive genetic conditions. And then we also test for other conditions that are inherited in an X-linked pattern. Um, most of us know that women are XX when it comes to the sex chromosomes and men are XY. As women, having those two copies of X chromosomes, it protects us from a lot of changes if they occur on one copy. But if we pass that copy that carries a change on it or a variation in a specific gene, if we pass that onto a son, that son doesn't have that second backup X chromosome and they're often associated with really serious neurological or muscle conditions. So genetic carrier screening is really designed to test healthy individuals or even individuals with a family or personal history to identify what changes they carry in those genes. And what we're really trying to identify is whether there's a risk that could affect the health outcomes of a child. So I guess in general, we're not testing for trivial changes in people's DNA. I know, you know, everyone's really interested in hair and eye colour and height, things that we can see that make us who we are. But genetic carrier screening is actually targeting diseases or conditions that have a significant impact on the health outcomes of a child. And we're really targeting those conditions that present in childhood. So we're not looking at late onset conditions. We're not looking at conditions where there may be variable penetrance, meaning carrying the change might not cause any problems, but really we're trying to target conditions that have a massive impact on the health outcomes and quality of life of a child. Can you give us an example? Yeah, absolutely. So I guess an example that a lot of people have heard of is cystic fibrosis. It's a genetic condition that affects lung function and pancreatic function. And historically, cystic fibrosis was a life-limiting condition. So due to progressive damage to the lungs, people may have ended up either requiring a lung transplant or potentially passing before we would want them to, so in their mid-30s or 40s. So cystic fibrosis is a really common condition in the Caucasian community. We think that about one in 28 people are carriers of cystic fibrosis. So if we think back to school where we had class sizes yeah. of about 28, one of your friends would have been a carrier of CF and you wouldn't have had any idea unless they'd had this testing. So then how do you know, like, if you do the test and then you find out that that's what your child may be carrying or you're carrying, mm. what happens then? So one of the reasons that we think genetic carrier screening is an important part of your pre-pregnancy preparation is because for about one in 40 couples who do this test, we identify that they're at high risk of having a child with a specific genetic condition. And when we know that information in advance, there are lots of things and choices that people can consider. I guess it's probably worthwhile saying that everyone makes decisions about sort of their risk thresholds. So when we're testing for, you know, upwards of 300 genetic conditions, there is a spectrum of how they impact a child's health. 
So at one end of the spectrum, one might consider that having a child who's born deaf is part of their culture and, in fact, they may want to have a deaf child. But for other people, perhaps if you're thinking about a musical family, having a child who is deaf, that would significantly impact that child's ability to feel part of that family culture. So there's a huge spectrum and, you know, all the way up at another end are conditions that are not sustainable with life. And these are things that we're really, really trying to avoid the heartbreak of for parents. But when we think about finding a couple who are at risk, there are sort of four main options. The first is you're armed with really, really important information. We know that's based on inheritance patterns, there's a 25% chance that any child that that couple has together could be affected by the specific genetic condition. So one couple may take that information and say, great, I know that this is a risk that my children may face. I'm going to arm myself with the best specialists, reach out to support groups and really empower myself so that I can bring a child into this world being best equipped to support them and, you know, make an environment that's most supportive to them and also make me feel confident in my ability to parent. I think one of the things that all us mums out there worry about is, oh my God, what do I do? Why are they letting me take this baby home? I don't know what I'm doing. They tell you all about pregnancy and labour and birth, but oh my God, you're going to let me take this fragile little thing home. So, you know, genetic carrier screening is all about information gathering and empowering you to make the best choices for your family, whatever those outcomes are. So that's one choice. The second choice is that you can use that information in a pregnancy setting. So you can get pregnant at home in what we call do it the old-fashioned way or the natural way and get pregnant. And there are two points in a pregnancy that you consider testing of the baby to identify whether it's going to be affected by that condition or not. The first is called Corion Villus Sampling. In medicine and genetics, we give everything acronyms, so we call that one a CVS, and that's a test that can be done between 11 and 13 weeks of pregnancy. And there's a second point in pregnancy after 15 weeks where an amniocentesis might be considered. These two tests are really important decisions to make you know, people really need to understand why they're doing their tests and what the risks and potential outcomes are. And we know that there is a very small chance that simply by having one of these tests, which basically involves inserting a needle into the area in which the baby is growing to either collect a sample of placenta or a sample of amniotic fluid, that can introduce the risk of infection and can lead to miscarriage. So we don't recommend having those tests unless there's something really important to investigate. For some people or who consider these testing, they are wanting to think about the options of how they would manage that pregnancy. So some people do get to a point in the pregnancy where they identify that the pregnancy is likely or will be affected by the specific condition. And for them, genetic counselling and support from their obstetrician and midwives is really important because they may need to consider ending that pregnancy to avoid the birth of a child with a serious genetic condition. So it's, you know, it's not information that we take lightly and it's really important that people understand the flow-on effects of the decision to even get that information in the first place. So that's your second option. Third option is you can consider IVF. So IVF, lots of people are familiar with. It's a way of creating embryos outside of the body. There's a specific genetic technology called pre-implantation genetic testing or PGT for short, and that's a technology that helps scientists develop a test within an IVF setting 
that can then analyze an embryo on day five of life and identify whether that embryo is going to be affected if it is born with the condition or not. And you would only progress with an IVF cycle with embryos that weren't affected with that condition. Fourth option gets a little bit more tricky, can involve donor (laughs) gametes, adoption. There's lots of things out there. But really, I guess, in short, um, or as my team like to say... There are a lot of options. (laughs) Yeah, there's a lot of options. And genetic counselling is really important because, you know, there's an element of sharing all of this information. Then there's an element of, oh, my God, what am I going to do? How do I know? (laughs) And, you know, at Eugene, we really want to give people space and time to understand what those choices are and what they mean to them because you can only make the best decision with the information that you've got in the moment and then adjust as you learn and experience different things. So I got tested before I had Poppy and I'm not sure if it was Eugene, I'm sorry. And then it was deemed that my husband didn't have to get tested. So sometimes the father of the child or, you know, if it's a sperm donor or whatever, they'll have to get tested, but sometimes they don't. And what was the reason that you got tested? Just to make sure that I wasn't a carrier of anything before I started to conceive. Is that an extra thing on top of what we normally get given, like in terms of like the government, they'll tell you to go and Yeah, yeah, I had to pay for it. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, so genetic carrier screening is considered a choice. There's no government or private health insurance rebates that can be offered or or gained from that. But basically, historically, the protocol or the way we would do it would be to test the the future mum first. And then only if she was a carrier would we test the sperm donor or the future dad. And the reason that we did that was because genetic testing was really expensive. And um, when we're testing only three genes, the chance of someone being found as a carrier is pretty small. But at Eugene, we're testing, you know, close to 300 genetic conditions. And then there's a 70% chance that anyone will be found to be a healthy carrier. And particularly when you're pregnant, time is of the essence. And, you know, to think about more catchphrases, it takes two to tango. You know, yeah. when we when we women get pregnant, we're the ones who get poked it's always and prodded. Us. It's always yeah. us. At Eugene, we really want to make it about the couple, whether that be including a donor or a romantic couple or a same-sex couple. We really want to make sure that we can get the fullest picture so that people can make the most informed decisions as possible. So these days, the larger the panel, we actually promote testing as a couple. We find that um, emotionally and it's a great date great it's a great great day day. you know we send you a saliva kit (laughs) what else would you want to do if you've got time together exactly (laughs) so you know we really consider that testing both members of a couple at the same time gives you the fullest picture we also know that if someone was to be found to be a carrier, that information is actually relevant to all their first degree relatives as a first point. So let's just say I was found to be a carrier of cystic fibrosis, but my partner wasn't. I'm going to feel really reassured that my chance of having a child with CF has been reduced beyond someone else in the population. But what that means for my brothers, my cousins, is that they're much more likely to be a carrier of CF as well. So I would say, hey, bro, Calling that, nice. I've just had this test. I found out I'm a carrier of CF. It means nothing for my health now or in the future. Unfortunately, I don't need to worry about it for my pregnancies. But you need to know that you're also now at a 50% chance that you could be a carrier. 
maybe you should yeah. think about whether carrier screening's right for you. And so, you know, the first person in the family is often the flag bearer. They come to Christmas armed with this information. They're like, oh, God, how do I tell people? Everyone either loves you or hates you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, what we really want to do is we want to normalise the fact that everyone carries gene variations. And the more that we're open about it and we share it with our friends and family, the more people can be empowered to make the choices that are important and right for them. So when I got it that time, it was kind of advertised to me like you pay for this once. If you continue to reproduce with the same partner, you don't have to get it again because, you know, if you know, you know, you're fine before you start. But that's maybe not true because like more things are becoming available. Is that right? And I thought yeah. mine was a blood test, not Yeah. Sweet. So historically it was a blood test and it only included three genes. So I think I kind of time all genetic technologies by the birth of my kids. So when I had my first son nine years ago, I had a blood test. That was a three-gene test. And I I also have a six-month-old at home now. And that, obviously, I went through Eugene, but that's a saliva test. And we know that blood and saliva both produce the same sort of DNA. But by collecting saliva, we can make it much, much more accessible. So yes, in most cases, we say once you've done a carrier screen, you never have to do it again. But technology does evolve. And so we are seeing people who come back their last pregnancy who may have had a smaller panel who then choose to have more extended testing. And how does this differ from the NIPT test or like the Harmony test or whatever, which is that one around 10 weeks? Um, They're not the same, are they? That is such a good question. Um, If this is the one thing that people walk away with from this podcast, listen, re-listen again. There's a huge amount of confusion about the difference between genetic carrier screening and NIPT. Firstly, they test completely different things. Yes, they're both genetic tests, but they're looking at different things. So NIPT is a genetic test, as we mentioned, that's offered to women between 10 and 12 weeks of pregnancy. And it's a blood test where scientists are able to isolate the baby's DNA from within the mother's blood, which in and of itself is crazy cool technology Mm. like geek out with me for a second it's amazing (laughs) Um, but we'll let you have the moment yeah yeah have have a moment but really what the scientists are then looking for is a subset of chromosomes so if we go back to year 11 biology we know that in every humans are made up of billions of cells and in these cells there are 23 pairs of chromosomes And you can imagine chromosomes to be like in old school encyclopedias. I know we all had those Britannicas when we were very, very fancy if we had them. But imagine that you were really, really spoiled and you got a whole set of 23 encyclopedias from your mum and a whole set from your dad. And within those encyclopedias, there are 23 of them and we're going to call them chromosomes. We know that there are some chromosome imbalances that can increase the risk of miscarriage. And we know a lot of miscarriages are caused by errors in how many chromosomes the baby inherits. NIPT is looking at five different chromosomes. So it's counting the number of chromosomes, 13, 18, 21, and then looking at the sex chromosomes, X and Y. And it's basically trying to predict whether the baby has inherited the normal or expected number of chromosomes. The most common chromosome difference is Down syndrome. And Down syndrome occurs when a baby has inherited three copies of chromosome 21. So NIPT is a blood test from the mum, but it's looking at the baby's DNA. 
and it's relevant to each and every pregnancy you have because the number of chromosomes that you get in an egg and a sperm can vary each and every time you have a pregnancy. And we know that as women age, the chance of carrying or passing on the wrong number of chromosomes increases. But so NIPT is something that's relevant to all pregnancies. Again, it's an out-of-pocket test. Carrier screening generally is a one-off test. It's a test of the parent's DNA, and it's looking for things that can impact any pregnancy. So really, you should do both tests, carrier screening at, you know, once, and then NIPT can be considered in any pregnancy. But I guess caveat is you need to want to know that information and you need to be open mm. to what it may mean for your pregnancy management. If you're the sort of person who's like, I'm going to believe in fate, I don't want to do anything, I want to look after me and the baby as best as I can, but not consider any invasive testing, then these tests might not be right for you. But if you're an information seeker and you're wanting to make these proactive choices based on the available technologies and medicine and science that's out there, always know that these two tests are available, but they're different. And so for preconception testing, what kind of costs are we talking? So depending on the panel and the team that are providing the service, the costs do vary quite a lot. So I'm going to talk about Eugene because that's where I work. But we provide screening for up to 300 genetic conditions. For an individual, it's $549. That is inclusive of all genetic counselling, shipping, handling, testing. Genetic testing is expensive. But what we want to do is we really want to make it accessible and we want to support the person from the point of their, you know, where they're deciding to have the test to where they're understanding the results and what their options are. Mm. So it's $549 for an individual and $749 for a couple. And so you said like nine years ago there was three that were tested Mm -hmm. and now there's 260. Like when do you stop? Like when do you go, okay, maybe we can't predict everything or maybe we shouldn't be able to predict everything? Like we're never going to have a time where like everyone's healthy and everyone's, yeah, where, when when do you kind of stop and go, okay, that's like enough to be able to know? Yeah, when we think about the potential of how much we can know, like where we're going to draw the line, I kind of think of it by setting the scene that we know that all humans have somewhere between twenty and 25,000 genes that influence who we are, how we grow and how we develop. We're testing a very, very, very small subset of those that are known to be associated with serious childhood onset conditions. We're never going to be testing for conditions that can't be actioned within a reproductive setting. So if I said to you, oh, gosh, your child's going to have blue eyes, what are you going to do about it? You're going to say, nothing. So why know that information? We really only want to target conditions where We understand what a gene change means. So there's a whole lot of terminology. I'll try and avoid all the jargon. But basically, we want to make sure that we can understand what that result means and we can translate that into what it might mean and how it might impact the health of a child. But the reality is we don't know about all the genes that we have in the human body and we probably never will. But what we do know is that the more people that have testing from different ethnic backgrounds, the more utility we're going to have for these tests and make sure that we're um, we're only including genes that are ethical to test. We don't want to give people information that's going to concern them that they can't do anything with. Mm. 
Mm. We're wanting help to really empower people with information that they can act on. So, you know, there there are lots of people out there who say, oh, well, you know, we should do 1,000, we should do 2,000, we should do 3,000. But the reality is there's kind of a sweet spot around 300 where the incidence or the chance of being a carrier maxes out at about one in 500 and where we know that that is going to have a massive impact on that child's health outcomes. Beyond that point, the chance of picking up extra at-risk couples is negligible. So we're really trying to balance the cost to get that test into the market and the utility for the people having the test to make those decisions. So I think, you know, genetics is probably pushing the boundaries of medicine and the law is really struggling to keep up. And that's why we really believe that genetic counselling and having people who can explain what these tests are and what the potential impact of having these tests are on individuals is so important because education is, you know, is really the starting point and awareness in helping the people really make these decisions that are right for them. So long-winded answer. It's possible to do a lot more, but we're never going to go full hog because, you know, too much information can be really unhelpful and scary. Yeah, I mean, like we did an episode once on gender selection and, you know, some people were like, oh, this is amazing, like it's something that I would love to have done and then other people were like, you know, this is playing God, like, you know, let life happen. So like, you know, I'm sure you would get it sometimes where people are like, oh, you're just like trying to create designer babies. Like what what do you say to that? Yeah, I guess so first and foremost, gender selection in Australia is illegal. Mm. unless there are medical grounds that suggest that having a a child of a specific gender is going to decrease the risk. I think, you know, designer babies is a catchphrase. (laughs) The reality is we're not not building a handbag. We're not curating (laughs) our perfect shoe. We're creating life. And as humans and and as mums and as prospective mums, we want to try and give our children the best chance at a, a great life as we can. You know, we um and I, you know, what pram should we buy and what baby carrier should we buy and should I buy organic clothes and do I wash them before I put them in them for the first time? Like we really worry about things that actually don't matter. You know, is breast best? What am I going to do to my child if I give them formula? Really, children need love, you know, and if we can try and prepare ourselves for the health outcomes of our children, that's a way of preparing to be parents. So, you know, I think designer babies is a catchphrase. It's not possible. It's not going to be part of the future. Yes, there are amazing technologies that can help improve the health, likely health outcomes of our children, but we're never going to be able to take away any risk. All pregnancies have a 1% to 2% chance that a child could be born with a difference in the way they develop or the way they learn or the way they interact with the community that no one can predict. You know, genetics is just one part of it. Nature and nurture, that's what's going to really impact your children. And what happens if you get this testing? Does it have any impact on like health insurance or life insurance or anything like that? Yeah. So in short, carrier screening isn't designed to diagnose a person having a test with a genetic condition. So life insurance, health insurance shouldn't be impacted. In general, Health insurance, private health insurance can't be affected by these sorts of tests. But when we think about other insurance like life insurance, 
We do know that strong family histories, let's, you know, we're not testing for cancer genes and carrier screening, but let's just say your mum sadly got breast cancer in her 40s and you're at elevated risk because of that. Your life insurance might be loaded because you're you're seen as someone who's at higher risk than someone in the general population. But we definitely recommend speaking to an insurance broker if you are concerned about a specific family history. I'm not an insurance broker, but in general, life insurance could be impacted and it, you are required to disclose any information about genetic testing and findings that have happened. But carrier screening, very, very unlikely to influence any form of your ability to access insurance. And I think the last one, if you're getting IVF, mm-hmm. is this still necessary or are things tested Mm. like is the embryo tested anyway or is that more instead of a nipped test so if you're having IVF already you should definitely consider genetic carrier screening because it is not you can't test for something unless you know about it existing already Ah. so we see a huge number of couples or single people who are planning IVF particularly with donors, if you think about donors, they're actually having genetic carrier screening as part of their work up to be an eligible donor. So certainly in IVF, if you're planning a pregnancy, you want to be prepared. You've got, you know, you're already taking on a lot of science, a lot of intervention in trying to get that very much wanted baby. Why not give yourself the best chance, lower the risk of miscarriage, increase the chance of a healthy birth outcome? NIPT is something that's done after that embryo has been implanted and is growing as a healthy baby. Yes, in IVF, you can test for chromosome changes at that day five stage. But again, it's a different sort of test as you would get from a single gene disorder result that you would get from carrier screening. There you go. Oh, you're a wealth of knowledge. I feel like my brain's about to leak <laughs> out my ears. I'm like, girl, you are smart. <laughs> <laughs> That's what I do. Oh, there you go. It's so late. I think that coming into it, I kind of thought it was way more of a like, you get the test and you're like, am I pro or am I against termination? And like, that's kind of what you went into the test with. But like genetic counselling and stuff, it's so much more layered than that. It's not necessarily like, will I go through with this pregnancy? It's like, even if I do, how can I have the best, you know, the most knowledge and tools to go into this as best as we can. And perhaps to wrap it up, you could just give us a little insight to if someone was interested, how, like what, what is the process roughly on what happens? Do they get a centre pack? Do you FaceTime via Zoom? What's the geo? What's the go? So with Eugene, our MO, I'm just going to, I'm so not cool, but our mission <laughs> is to make, <laughs> is to make genetic testing accessible and on your terms. So if you're wanting to have genetic carrier screening, a lot of people are recommended that they reach out to Eugene by their doctors, but you can equally jump on our website, which is eugenelabs.com. You can order your test kits, whether it be for yourself or yourself and your loved one if you're feeling nice, which you should. But we will send you saliva kits to your home. They arrive really quickly. We've got really great onboarding in that you can access a whole lot of video content in case you're really not bored of my face and voice yet to get a whole lot more information from me through that but really what we're aiming to do is to make sure that you feel included in the decisions and able to provide informed consent to go ahead with that test in the first place we've got lots of genetic counselors in the team 
who will review your personal and family history and make sure this test is right for you and really answer any questions that you've got in the lead up to spitting in that actual tube, which is a really bizarre experience. Well, I made a joke before about it not being a hot date, but I don't know, you could incorporate it. You into could. it you know it's at your home you're no spitting food, in a tube no wine I mean, that can come had, after we've all had some practice during COVID with spitting in a tube and testing bits and pieces so I'm sure that you know yeah. people have had practice exactly but really you know it's as simple as dropping your kit off in an Oz post <laughs> you were thinking taking <laughs> yeah, your kit yeah, off yeah no <laughs> no <laughs> dropping your saliva <laughs> sample in a post. Oh, yeah, that's way sexier. <laughs> so sexy. And then within three to six weeks, we will arrange to have that sample sent off to a laboratory. The laboratory will write a report on your individual results. Our genetic counsellors put together those results in a really accessible and meaningful report. And then we invite you to jump on Zoom exactly like this, meet up with one of our genetic counsellors who will talk you through your individual results discuss any implications of those for your reproductive decision making and then sort of as we ran through it earlier tell you about what your options are and if you are one of those one in 40 couples who are facing you know a real change to the way you thought about planning a family we're really there to support you as you sort of take all that information on and think about all of those options and then we can provide referrals into whether it be an obstetrician or a tertiary Mm. genetics clinic or an IVF specialist so that you can then get that ongoing support that you need to make the decisions that are right for you. But it really is simple. We want to try and remove as many barriers as we can for people being able to access this test because it's really, really important information and more people should first and foremost know about it and then decide whether it's right for them. Absolutely. No, I feel like you're making something that is extremely complex, much more simple. I feel like I knew a bit about it before this, but yeah, I feel like I've learned so much more, but I know that there would be people out there who have never been offered it or never heard of it before. Have you ever been offered it or heard of it? Absolutely not. But now I'm going to be just sharing that advice around (laughs) town. So thank you. Thank you. And (laughs) Eugene. No, thank you so much for joining us today and telling us all about preconception genetic testing and, yeah. Now, Zoe, you did mention that you were going to give our listeners a little bit of a discount if they were interested in something like this. So did you want to share that? Yeah. So we've got a discount code that is exclusive to the listeners of Beyond the Bump, which will give them $50 off their test. But, yeah, really we just want to make it as accessible as possible for anyone who's considering it. Beautiful. Awesome. Thank you so much for joining us today, Zoe. Pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to this episode of Beyond the Bump. If you enjoyed it, please subscribe and give us a review. If you didn't, good on you. You can also follow us on Instagram at beyondthebump.podcast to stay up to date on behind the scenes and future episodes. We'll see you next week. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.